With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we're here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to my 48th episode of the show. I use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and I also provide worldwide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect their privacy. Please subscribe to my show. You can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, Podtoppin, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And also, of course, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel site, and then you will be notified just as soon as a new show is available. I sincerely appreciate all of you worldwide who tune in. And, you know, I love seeing all the different countries and cities on my listeners report. It's really exciting to see. In this last week, I had a large number of new listeners tuning in from China, Portugal, and Morocco. And in the U.S., I had a few thousand more tuned in from various places all over the states and territories, plus many other places on the map. I think we're up to just over 60 different countries now. These numbers reflect listeners from my show website online, and it's based on a general location that's determined through a portion of the IP addresses of those visiting that website. I don't know what the listener numbers are for all those other apps I mentioned earlier, but, you know, one of these days, I'm going to get some time to figure that out as well. So welcome and thanks so much for all of you for tuning in. Now, if you're interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my show, please also get in touch. And if you need help with information security or privacy, just let me know. And please keep all your feedback and questions coming in. I truly do love getting all of them. And if I haven't replied to you yet, you know, I'm trying to get to them. But I do really love seeing them come in. My January Privacy Professor Tips message was published on December 28th. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please go ahead and sign up for them. I've provided them free since 2007 in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Now for my tip for the week. So, This month, January, is when International Data Privacy Day takes place, and that's on January 28th. 
So since we have that going on this month, I'm going to give two tips for you today. First, something I encourage all of you with social media accounts to do. Review your security and privacy settings. Here it is at the beginning of the new year. Let's go ahead Take a few minutes and look at what your settings are and restrict all those settings as much as possible. As the different social uh, media sites get upgraded, sometimes those settings change. So you want to go in and check them periodically. And this is for all of your social media accounts. If you haven't used a social media account for a long time, then just delete it. Don't keep your information out there and access open to um, your account, potentially, if you aren't even using it. Now, for my second tip, in the past couple of months, there has been an uptick in the occurrences of impersonator social media accounts. Now, I've had two impersonator accounts that were created for me on Facebook in just the last month alone. In just the past two weeks, some of my friends and relatives whose information is publicly available, they also had impersonation accounts created for them. You know, if this happens to you, report it to your associated social media administrator. For example, on Facebook, to report an impersonation, here's generally what you should do. Number one, go to the profile of that impersonating account. Now, if you cannot find it, try doing just a search at the top of the Facebook page uh, in the search area and search for the name used on the profile or Ask your friends if you heard from it, this impersonator from them. Um, ask them to send you the link or the URL to it. Then click on the cover photo and select give feedback or report this profile. And then follow the on-screen instructions for impersonation to file a report. Now, if you don't have a Facebook account and you want to report someone that's pretending to be you on Facebook um, or even someone else that you know that you see as being impersonated, there's also a form on the Facebook site that you can submit to them to let them know that somebody's pretending to be someone else that they shouldn't. And similar actions can also be taken for other social media sites as well for uh, impersonations on them. So to our topic today, you know, computing ethics has long been a real concern of mine. I've written about it several times. I've taught classes on it when I was an adjunct professor for the Norwich University Master of Science in Information Security and Assurance Program. And consideration of computing ethics is an important component of information security and privacy. You know, let me give you just two specific real-life examples involving ethics and how they impact or could impact privacy. So, in January 2006, been quite a while ago, I know, but it stuck with me. You know, I got an unsolicited package in the U.S. Postal Mail, and it came from a security software vendor, 
who, by the way, is not in business anymore. But anyway, I opened up the package, and there was this copy of Enron's Year 2000 Code of Ethics booklet, an exact copy of that full booklet. And that booklet also contained the Enron's information security policies. So why did that security vendor send this to me? Well, the vendor was promoting their product by encouraging potential customers to go to a site and view it. What they had done was they set up a site with a copy of all of the Enron email messages, quote, over 85,000 records, end quote, that were on the Enron system at the time of the Enron collapse. And I think a lot of you probably remember that. It was a big thing when it happened. If you didn't, just Google it and you'll soon find it. But the security vendor was sending the Enron policies to demonstrate the non-compliance that Enron had with their own security policies. And the, the vendor tried to rationalize their publicizing all these emails. I mean, nothing in the emails were redacted or covered up. It was, it was clear text. And they tried to reason it out by indicating that, well, since the information is, quote, already posted on the web by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, that they, quote, believe that it is not harming anyone, end quote. However, Right before this, in their message, the vendor indicated that it, quote, believes that most Enron employees are and were hardworking, honest people who are and were trying to do a good job. We respect them and apologize for any embarrassment that this content may cause them, end quote. So this security vendor was promoting a contest to provide or to find uh, the best emails from the Enron email database that would number one be grounds for firing because it was in non-compliance with their uh, security policy. Number two contained the funniest jokes, and number three were the most embarrassing to the sender. So the security vendor was encouraging others to further embarrass the people named in the emails. And they even documented that they realized that they were probably embarrassing or harming someone by their actions and invading their privacy even further than had already been done. But the security vendor did their actions anyway for their own marketing purposes. It wasn't breaking any law. So just think about it. Does this sound or seem ethical to you? A second example, in 2013, and probably most of you recall when Edward Snowden posted a lot of classified information that he had obtained from the NSA, posted it online to demonstrate the type of data being collected through government surveillance activities. However, this data he posted publicly, which had not been public before, contained a lot of personal and sensitive information on millions of people. So Snowden and others said that what they did was justified 
to reveal the types of surveillance activities that were occurring. However, you know, just consider what this did to those people who were involved. Does purposefully causing a breach of privacy of all those other individuals to reveal a perceived wrongdoing by the government, does that seem ethical or could other things have been done? Um, I think, and I've talked about before, many other things that could have been done to still get their point across. And now, today, we're dealing with additional emerging ethical issues involving big data analytics and artificial intelligence and associated biases and the use of personal data that's found online that's not protected, it's publicly accessible, and also that is generated by and transmitted through all of those smart devices, those IoT devices, and so many other situations. Today, I'm being joined by Lynn Fountain. Lynn is an executive professional with over 35 years of experience in the corporate and private sector, and Lynn's going to discuss with me computing ethics, particularly as they relate to information security and privacy. Ms. Fountain's expertise spans technical accounting, internal audit and controls, fraud, consulting, and professional training. Ms. Fountain has authored three books on topics of fraud, internal, uh, internal audit, and ethics. Lynn is a highly sought-after trainer and speaker. Ms. Fountain is a Kansas licensed CPA. Lynn also holds her CGMA and CRMA certificates. Ms. Fountain obtained her MBA from Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas. Her website is lynnfountain.net. Lynn, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I first of all have to kind of your tips for the day because I am constantly amazed how many people do not understand the security settings on some of the social media websites. And the stories you told about both Enron and Snowden are very interesting. Um, the Enron issue, actually, uh, I at the time was with a very large utility and we had some uh, similar issues that Enron did. So basically my utility does not exist anymore. But, um, you know, I, I was interested to hear you say that that came out in 2006 because the Enron collapse actually happened in 2000. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure there was a lot through the court cases that kept the information out of the public. But you're right. That, I mean, I tell people now, go Google Enron Code of Conduct and it's on the web. So it's amazing the things you can find. Oh, yes, it is, isn't it? I mean, especially things that happened pre-internet are now scanned and, and put on the internet. Um, but I'm so glad you're joining me today. I think it might help our listeners. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, too, we have folks joining from all over the world. So it might help our listeners to get a, a level set for what, we mean or consider to be a good description or definition of computing ethics. So um, how would you describe that to our listeners? Well, in general, I mean, I, my one of my passions or 
hot topics, it's ethics. And it's because I've been in several corporate arenas where um, you can span all different type of ethical issues. So generally, ethics, to me, break it down simple, is doing the right or wrong thing. The problem becomes who decides what's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And in computing ethics, um, our issues with cybersecurity are expanding our concerns about, you know, what is and isn't ethical. So I go back a little bit from a computing ethics viewpoint and saying, using the kind of acronym CIA, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. You, we want to maintain the confidentiality of the information, whether it's personal or corporate, um, the integrity of the data. You know, you don't just want anybody getting in and like spoofing your profile like you just talked about. And then the availability of the data. You want the data available to the right people at the right time. So when I think of computing ethics, I think of, you know, how do, not just how do we use our laptop computer or our desktop computer, but how are we using the whole, you mentioned the Internet of Things. You know, how do we use that in totality from our smartphones to our um, iPads to our desktops, uh, to our information systems, what we put on the internet, how we utilize uh, our social media sites. So that's my definition. And, you know, I think, too, something that a lot of people don't realize is that ethics um, goes beyond the laws, because I've had so many people say to me something like, well, it's not, you know, against the law, for us to do this, so it must be okay, right? Um, and <laughs> that's always like, well, not necessarily. I mean, ethics is kind of hard to encapsulate within any laws, and it's not just if it's not illegal, it means it's it's ethical. Um, well, I don't know. and that's, you bring up a good point, Rebecca, because, you know, one of my things when I talk about ethics to people is I say, and excuse me if you're a lawyer on the podcast, but I always say just because it's legal doesn't mean it's ethical. We can go back to all types of uh, cases that have been tried in the courts on different concepts and go, well, legally they got off, but ethically, is this the right thing? So again, to me, ethics is a moral choice, a moral viewpoint. And you can look at the concept of ethics just in general and say, okay, well, let's, let's use computing ethics, okay? So what we, we talk about the white hat hacker, the black hat hacker, and the gray hat hacker. The white hat hacker is supposedly the ethical hacker, right? Now think about that definition oxymoron. Um, but the reason they say they're the ethical hacker is because the person has been given the permission by the nation state or company or whoever he's working to break into the information. So maybe what we in the U.S., maybe our FBI or CIA, whoever they are, who we consider white hat hackers, now think about the people in other countries. Do they really consider those people? ethical hackers. So it is very much a 
moral philosophy and a viewpoint of how it's, you know, how and who's looking at it. Very subjective, yes, uh, depending upon many different issues, right? And I want to reference now a part of your book, a passage in your latest book on ethics. Um, You write that in that book that, quote, as the mixture of the workforce changes, ethical culture will change, end quote. So prior to that passage, you described the different generations of workforce members, you know, and, and you use the terms that I think a lot of people have heard, baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z. What have you determined to be a factor impacting computing ethics with these different generations working together? Well, I think that's that's a fair question. Um, I think part of it comes with um, the particular generation and when and how they learned information about computing. All right, so example, I'm a baby boomer. When I went to college, I did not study information technology because I didn't want to sit in a cold room all day and punch COBOL cards. That's (laughs) what information technology was back then. Um, But as I got into the workforce, and it was probably into the late 90s when you know, people started really using computers more. And we had to figure out, for those of us who didn't take that stuff in school, kind of walk our way through what was happening. Well, now you have the young, the millennials, the Gen Z. I have a grandson who's 10 years old, who basically they learn it from, gosh, you see kids that are a year old with iPads. A lot of it is in how they learned the concept, what they learned is right and wrong, and how they learned to apply it, if that makes any sense. So, you know, whereas, um, I'll give an example. My father passed away a couple of years ago. He was 87. My father, uh, we could not get to use the uh, internet or uh, email. He just refused. That was just not a way of communication for him. Um, he didn't want. He was afraid people would see what he wrote or how he wrote it or what he said. And he came up in a whole different generation. Uh, on the other side, my mother, just a couple years younger, you know, we did get her to learn, but she was very, very cautious about what she responded to and how she did it because she didn't understand the technology. And I think ethics in computing comes down to really uh, understanding how information can be used, can be breached, can be uh, taken advantage of. And uh, I just finished on cybersecurity, and it continues to evolve. So ethics uh, with the different generations, some of it, you know, there are millennials who grew with knowing computing with smart devices um with uh, let's see i think my oldest child who's now 32 facebook first hit the scene when he was in middle school and i remember thinking what the heck is this facebook thing and uh we were being told by the school administrator set up an account and friend your child and I was like now wait a minute my child's smart enough to know he can set up a 
uh, fake account not tell me what that account is and talk any way wants. But again, they started learning from a very early age. You know, they used it as vetting purposes. And now, what you know, they say in Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, what happens on the Internet stays on the Internet. And people actually can lose their jobs or not obtain a job because of something they put on the Internet 15 years ago or put out there in an email. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too, when, and I've been on Facebook for a long time, I first got onto it because I wanted to learn about the security and privacy issues, but over the years, I've, you know, friended people who I grew up with uh, from an early age, relatives, uh, people that I worked with in the past, and what I'm finding is... um, it seems like, too, the groups that you're a part of, oftentimes, even though they're of multiple different generations, if they're communicating with each other on an ongoing basis, sometimes their ethics seem to be similar as well, just because of their associations with each other, as opposed to the different generations that they might be part of, Um you know, one thing I'm finding interesting is I get a lot of friend requests from college students who are, you know, just getting into college after high school. And it's just very interesting to me that a lot of what they're studying and their their viewpoints are reflecting more of the, the Gen X or the baby boomers as opposed to maybe the millennials. So maybe it that has something to do with it. I think that can be, yeah, that can be true. I, I sometimes tell people when I'm talking about ethics, you know, sit up, get a room of 100, mostly each person in that room grew up maybe in a different city, a different possibly country, went to a different school, uh, has a different religious faith belief, uh, has, you know, their parents have different morals and values, and that's all embedded in them. And so when it comes down to, Hey, defining ethics, that's why it's so hard, because everyone has a different view of what is, and is it ethical? Is it okay for that person to use all that Enron information from back in 2000, because it's out there available? Um, Who are they hurting? And I think that's what people have to think about. Exactly. So, Lynn, right now it's time for us to take a, a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors. So, um, you know, I do appreciate my valued sponsors so much. So we're going to break right here for just a few moments. I'm speaking today with Lynn Fountain, author of Ethics and the Internal Auditor's Political Dilemma, Tools and Techniques to Evaluate a Company's Ethical Culture that's published by CRC Press. And we're talking about computing ethics. I'm your host, Rebecca Harrell, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about the show at Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHarrell.com and also through my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with Lynn Fountain, author of Ethics and the Internal Auditor's Political Dilemma, Tools and Techniques to Evaluate a Company's Ethical Culture, and we're talking about computing ethics. So I want to get into some uh, specific types of ethical dilemmas with some current and emerging types of technology. So, Lynn, what do you see as some of the most serious ethical considerations for how privacy and information security are impacted or could be impacted um, with the use of big data analytics. If you consider, you know, anyone that surfs the internet and think around Christmas time, you decide to go to a shopping site. Have you ever noticed that the next time you get on the internet in your side pops hey, you forgot XYZ that you were looking at, some pair of shoes or something. So it is, people don't realize that that is all part of big data. Many people think big data is just financial data. No, you've got all those companies out there from a marketing viewpoint or just a customer data set that are collecting activity um, so that they know better how to market to you. I had, uh, when my father was, he was taking a, a specific drug, 
And there, I would see on TV the warnings about that drug. And I didn't know much about it. So I Googled it one time. Within 10 minutes, I got an email from that company. And I had not filled anything out. So when we talk big data, just keep in mind it's all the things that are out there that are being collected through your social networking uh, your Twitter account, your Instagram account, the activity you do on Facebook. You know, at Facebook, one of the things that people like to do is hit those little games that said, okay, did I marry the right person or when will I die? Well, there's a purpose for those. They're collecting data on you. So that in and of itself can turn into ethical dilemmas for people in regards to their everyday life. Oh, yes. And in fact, you know, I'll add to your list there, the IoT devices and the apps um, are all collecting data almost continuously, and then they share them with unlimited other uh, types of organizations. Um, And so, you know, all of this data collection and data sharing just occurs on an ongoing basis. People don't know it, really. Uh, You know, it's our personal exhaust, if you will, that we're leaving behind with every action we take online or through any type of Wi-Fi. So what actions would you recommend to organizations who are thinking about the ethics involved with how their own organization and their employees and their contractors are using data. What what actions can organizations take to support more ethical decisions, uh, especially as they impact privacy and information security for big data analytics use? A lot of it comes back to, and I, I kind of, being a long-term internal auditor, almost hate this concept, but... Um, policy. If your people do not understand your position on an issue, then they're going to default to their own morals or uh, concepts of what they believe is right and wrong. So remember we said ethics is, there isn't necessarily anybody out there that's really defining right and wrong and putting it in stone. Much of it is a moral philosophy. So for companies uh, especially companies that house very sensitive data, hospital, rest homes, or um, even even software companies, where they get your social security and the IRS. If those employees are not aware of your organization's stance on how you should or should not be utilizing information from your company systems, then you're defaulting to your employees' own personal morals, which may not line up with the companies. Well, and also, I guess, you know, the, the issue of morals versus ethics is always an interesting one, too, because from my perspective, and, and I'm interested in yours, but morality is more of an individual feeling uh, and oftentimes is based upon people's uh, perceptions, maybe religious perspectives, maybe the area where they're at. But when you think about morals and then you think about ethics, ethics from a corporate standpoint could be encoded in how you want the company to be represented and to use data. And 
those ethics that the the corporation or the the business establishes that might be something that is is establishing ethics but it could go against the workers personal morals right or vice versa so there becomes those types of you're exactly right so what should companies do i mean would you recommend then that businesses um establish their own code of ethics that 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 all employees should follow then so that they can know and understand what's expected of them when they are performing different job activities oh and you know you're exactly right Um, morality is linked to ethics ethics is established by whoever is uh outlining the policy, and it's going to be based off their moralities or the moralities of the organization. So, you know, if you're in an organization, and I just read something on, um, I can't totally recall, but some organization, very large organization, where uh, the workers were being asked to collect data on, you know, people that uh, were calling in, and that that went against the individual's personal morals because they knew that information was being sold to other companies um, to use on their marketing list. A lot of times, you know, you may go in an organization and you're, sometimes you have to make your own decision as to whether your personal morals and ethics lines up with the organization. And if they don't, then I highly suggest, because I had this happen, that you move on to another organization. Employees need to be able to buy in to the morals and ethics as defined by the company. Well, another area, too, related to this is the growing use of artificial intelligence, or AI for short. So, you know, one of my degrees is in mathematics, and I always love statistics, but I I know as a person who knows mathematics that you can really make statistics look, (laughs) the results can can be skewed to however you want them to be if uh, no one's watching or really evaluating how you did that type of computation. And I see the same issue with artificial intelligence because so many companies now are making choices or decisions based on the results of AI algorithms. Well, the um, the skew of the AI algorithm results are going to be- depend upon largely the, pe- the person or the people who created those algorithms. I mean, some of their prejudices and and uh, other types of views might be incorporated into those innocent-looking algorithms just based upon their own life experiences. So, um, you know, how do you see this growing use of AI? Like, it, it gets into moral, too, because what if the AI was created by someone who has a strong belief regarding um, what type of gender should or should not be given the loan or religion or, you know, race should be given a loan. And so they might subconsciously or consciously create an AI algorithm that 
gives the results of whether or not you're going to give someone a loan based upon what they, you know, had on their application that takes into consideration these things. I mean, what are you seeing with regard to, as, as someone who audits these types of activities, what should be done so these are not so skewed and, and prejudicial with regard to AI algorithms to make them more ethical? I think you brought up a very, yeah, Meg, you brought up a very good point, and um, because there's some, there's still somebody behind AR programming and uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, tolerances or whatever the case may be. And so, you know, from an auditor perspective, we always say you have to sit back and look at it from um, the logical viewpoint. I, I hate as an auditor, I wouldn't, didn't like or wouldn't allow my auditors to use checklists. Because checklists are yes and no, and they take away your ability to use your own professional skepticism and judgment. And so in, in regards to artificial intelligence, it's great in a lot of ways. I mean, it's advancing medicine uh, by leaps and bounds. But if you start thinking about just the concept of cloning um, and how artificial intelligence, you know, it's, it, it means like learning, the machine is learning from its experiences and, you know, takes those on into other experiences. Um, artificial intelligence, uh, just take Siri, for example. Uh, have you ever, yourself, Siri gets used to your voice. Mm-hmm. Um, one time, my grandson at eight years old, was trying to tell Siri or ask Siri something. And it didn't understand her because it had learned my voice, not his voice. So again, you know, we have to keep in mind artificial intelligence, um, there's still a, there's still need for that independent review. And we we shouldn't rely solely. Of course, it's, it's a great advancement. It's going to help many fields, but it still needs to be evaluated with skepticism and open-mindedness because the risks that you stated are there. And right now, there's probably not a way to program that out of it. Well, it it takes definite effort, (laughs) that's for sure. And, you know, I think a really good example of this uh, with regard to the use of AI, especially by a big technology company, is um, when we consider that Google recently announced that they were drafting ethical principles for artificial intelligence. And they did this because over 30 or over 3,000 of their employees complained in a signed letter to their CEO about the fact that Google was planning to help the U.S. Department of Defense in a, you know, in a wide range of ways. But one of these was through the use of AI techniques to analyze drone footage. And when Google, you know, when the employees found out about this, they were like, wow, the, you know, drone footage and being used by the department of defense. So the employees got concerned because they said, well, this could realistically help target people, you know, for other things beyond the original purpose, you know, for the department of defense. Maybe it could even 
target people for death in some way. So they wanted right. their privacy ex- issues. Well, privacy and also just the ethics of how you know what are you using AI for? Uh, if you created it for one reason, but yet go on to to you know use it for other types of issues that could be not only damaging financially, but damaging in a very real physical way. Um, so they wanted their Google executives to say that what they were creating would be used only for non-offensive purposes. I mean, what are the ethical issues you see for these new types of technologies and AI algorithms and making these judgments uh, when it, those types of algorithms could potentially be used to do physical harm, not just financial or digital harm. That's where the whole judgment things come back into play. You you said it yourself. The um, employees said non-offensive uses. Well, whose definition of non-offense? I mean, is non-offensive to me the same thing as non-offensive to you? So, one of the things, you know, I, I, another thing I tell people is that if we don't regulate ourselves, do things ethically in the best manner possible, the government's going to come in and probably legislate us. And then, you know, things are down and running, you're going to have to do things a third, certain way. But there's a lay in our day and age right now, probably no single policy that's going to cover everything that is potentially out there. It's one of those concepts of staying up with emerging technologies, especially in whatever industry you're in and what it's doing. Thinking, think about the technologies now in hospitals where you have um, computers or robots that are doing surgeries. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's a little scary. You know, they are doing their protocols based off someone's program and artificial intelligence learning. Okay, I sure hope somebody doesn't hack into that um, robot when they're doing open-heart surgery on someone. But it goes back to the concepts of understanding what artificial data, social media is being used for and applying practical, common sense, um, and uh, ethical, as we said, what is right and what is wrong, but, you know, moral, moral concepts to those elements. And I think that's probably where a lot of organizations maybe don't have, you know, a group, uh, an ethics board, or maybe even a code of ethics, especially as you get down into middle-sized and smaller businesses. Um, are there groups that, you know, small to mid-sized businesses who, who don't have the resources for having these sites, uh, types of boards or groups? Uh, are there any of those that exist that maybe they can consider, you know, being part of or participating in where they can learn about these types of issues? Well, you know, there there are a lot of different groups out there. And, of course, most publicly traded companies now have compliance officers or ethics officers. There are a lot of different organizations. I think one's called the Society of Compliance and Ethics um, mm-hmm. that you can get information from. 
one of the things, and, and I, I just finished another course really on cybersecurity for small businesses and not-for-profits, because really they have very, very different characteristics than large businesses. And you're right, they don't have the resources. So you have to kind of right-size what you you know put out there and can do. One of the things I had a lawyer tell me one time is never write a policy that you cannot enforce. And he wasn't saying don't write a policy. He was just saying you got to make sure that if you put this down in writing, you can enforce it and you can monitor it. Because if you don't, you're putting the company at higher risk and higher liability. So for smaller entities, you know, join your local contractors association or, you know, there's always not-for-profit associations out there that um, have example, you know, codes of conduct, conflict of interest. What is a conflict of interest in a family-owned business? I mean, right. means they're probably have many people working from the family. So it's a whole different definition than it might be in a not-for-profit or an organization. So the best thing to do is seek out other organizations like your own, look on the internet for, um, you know, those compliance and ethical type organizations. Finally, the AICPA themselves has um, a separate component on their websites that's for not-for-profits, and it covers more than just accounting standards. It covers ethics and things like that, Um, but as well as other types of uh, compliance and ethical organizations. There's many of them out there that you can find. But I would look at which ones most closely tie to the type of business that you're in. Right. And what about your book? I mean, let our listeners know about your book because you wrote a book on ethics. Um, So what does it cover and how can it help um, folks who are looking to establish their own ethics uh, programs or code of ethics for their own organization? Well, well, it is entitled Ethics and the Internal Auditors Plumbing, a political dilemma, but that's primarily because that was my career for a really long time. I wrote it after leaving uh, an organization where I felt there were some significant ethical issues, and uh, primarily in regards to how internal audit was viewed or treated or how their uh, recommendations and findings were evaluated. So I literally, in the book, talk a lot about the whole span of life and, um, you know, what is right and wrong and who does decide that. And, you know, everyone has their own moral code. And at the end of the day, I mean, when you're dying and then you lay on that deathbed and say, I wish I wouldn't have done X, Y, Z. So my book isn't, isn't necessarily just for auditors. I think auditors are put in many difficult dilemmas, and they can be very ethical dilemmas. I mean, you're told you're supposed to report to the board, and then management says, don't tell the board X, Y, Z. That's an ethical dilemma. And, and so I, I address a lot of those things and you know, how you balance that. At the end of the day, you do have to make a decision. I made a decision myself. I made a decision that that wasn't the right place for me. And um, so I think when I have as uh, I have three children, one of them just came out of college. The oldest one is 10 years out of college. It's amazing the difference in their 
concepts of technology. But one of the things when my youngest one was interviewing for jobs, I talked to him a lot about the organization and their stance on certain issues and the politics around um, management and how they um, assigned positions, how they viewed different things. And I was greatly uh, surprised that in his position, they um, had a first six-week training period where they talked a lot about the culture, the ethics of the company, things they'd done wrong in the past, how they tried to correct those. And I, I was very pleased to hear that. I think companies are learning, and it's all a learning curve, and we can never quit learning. So, you know, the basis of my book a lot is is some personal experience, but talking about how you balance that. And at the end of the day, you yourself have to be able to say, I did the right thing. So we're almost to the end of the show, but in maybe a minute's time, what would be the one, maybe two things you want listeners to take away from our show with regard to computing ethics today? I would say understand the platform, social platforms you're on, and understand that whatever you put out there is going to be out there and is available for people to see. I gave a very good tip with understanding the privacy settings. I also think... Um, especially we talked about small businesses, but organizations don't understand enough about what's happening in the world of cybersecurity. And that ties so strongly to information technology and big data and overall ethics. So educate yourself on some of these terms that you hear thrown out, ransomware, spyware, malware, uh, root kits, all those things, but understand what's causing those because many of those can become very ethical issues that your company or you may have to deal with. Very good. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Lynn. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Today, I've been speaking with Lynn Fountain, author of Ethics and the Internal Auditor's Political Dilemma. And we've been discussing a variety of computing ethics. What did you think about our show? Do you have feedback on any of the issues that we talked about or points? Send me an email. Let me know. And also, do you have other topics to suggest that I cover or a guest to suggest? Um, Just send me an email, and I love to hear from you. My email is RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Please tune into the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled lifetime, you will be able to listen to all of the recordings. And in fact, you can listen uh, and find all of the recordings of all my past shows on iTunes and Mobile Play and all those other different apps that I talked about at the beginning of the show, in addition to the Voice America business channel website and now I've also set up on my own privacyguidance.com website a list of shows and I've put them into categories so you can easily see the categories and click on the link to go right to the recording of that radio show you can um, also let me know if there's anything in particular that you see emerging that you want me to be aware of so 
Between now and our next show, I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job, do your daily work, or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and who you work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.